true, is prepared to disagree publicly, loudly, and he doesn't really give two hoots about what people think for the sake of truth. I want to say to you, church, I think in the 21st century, living in, in the UK and living in Europe, we're going to have to stand up for some things and publicly disagree and take the consequences of our disagreements based on truth. Thirdly, people have said they don't like the letter because it's too intellectual. Well, I want to encourage you, for those of you that are reading this in, as part of your devotions, don't let that put you off. The Bible says we're to love God with all of our heart, all of our strength, and all of our minds. Christianity involves thinking. It's not just a blind leap of faith. Christianity is based on history. It's based on a book. It's based on the person of Jesus. We need to think about what we believe, and we need to be those that are intent on continuing to have an unfolding revelation through the truth of the Scripture into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit as we study the Word of God. Are you with me? So don't let that intellectual argument put you off. And lastly, people have said this. It's far too controversial. <laughs> it's far too controversial. It's argumentative. It's an argumentative book. And again, I want to just say our modern mindset, the, the basic underlying premise of our culture is don't argue about religion. Don't argue. I mean, there's so many, all, we're all going to get to God in the end. Doesn't matter if you're a Muslim, doesn't matter if you're a Christian, doesn't matter if you're a Jew, we're all going to get to God in the end. Well, actually, I want to say we need to argue about some things. believed, we would have never had the Reformation. Can anyone say amen? Because that is true. If he hadn't took on the Catholic Church, which was the power, the, it was like the superpower of his day. I don't know if you realize that. But it was a political entity, it was a religious entity, and it ruled the world, the Catholic Church. And he, one man, together with other reformers, took on that culture, and he opposed it publicly, and he spoke with fear for his life. And the Reformation came, and we are living in the fruit of that. Thank you, Jesus, that he disagreed. Our culture has two values that it absolutely holds up above all others, and these are these two words, tolerance and tact. <laughs> we need to be tolerant. We need to be tolerant of other faiths. We need to be tolerant of each other. We need to be tactful in how we speak. Can I just gently remind you this morning that when I look at the Scripture, I do not see Jesus being a tolerant man. I do not see Jesus being a tactful man. If he was tolerant and tactful, they would not have crucified him. He stood up in the midst of his culture and radically became the, proclaimed the kingdom, and he was crucified for it. <laughs> That's the gospel. So then, I want to just pose this question. How do we talk about differences then? How do we handle our differences in the church? Because I think that's a very good question. And I want to say this. No one likes a family that's fighting all the time, do you? I mean, I don't like to. When my family fights, I don't particularly like it. And no one wants to be part of a church family that's continually argumentative and fighting about things. But I want to say this. I think we need to be clear that we separate primary issues from secondary issues. 
And I think sometimes in the church we're fighting about secondary issues all the time, and we're so fighting about secondary issues that we forget the primary issues. In some quarters of the church community, it's very important that you honor a Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. And so people for generations have thought about, well, should, be, sun, should um, shops be open on a Sunday and all those kind of things. I want to just say this to you. Paul says we should be fully persuaded in our own mind. Fully persuaded in your own mind. And if Sunday is a day that you choose to honor Lord, the Lord and you say it's the Lord's day, that's your right, that's your privilege. If you are a person who says every day is the Lord's day, that's your right and it's your privilege. And we do not have any right to impose upon other people, particularly unbelievers, what we hold as a value. <laughs> so whatever you believe about Sundays, make it, if it's your conviction, that's cool. Hold it. But don't try and force other people to believe what you believe. We can't do that. Are you with me? Be fully persuaded. But I want to say that Galatians raises some of the fundamental, some of the primary issues that we need to be fighting about. And I say fighting in a good way, that we need to be arguing about. Because if we, if we lose the heart of Galatians, we are losing the heart of the Christian gospel, and we don't have much left. I didn't switch my phone off. I can't believe that. Sorry. Who's phoning me at 11 o'clock and then I'm preaching? Trevor Rishworth. You would do that, wouldn't you? <laughs> okay. I want to say this. Many of the biggest battles that we fight are not outside of the local church. They are inside the church. And that sometimes is the most painful thing when you have to fight about issues inside the church. But I think this, you see, when the devil tries to attack from the outside, the church seems to get stronger. <laughs> when it's an obvious attack from the outside, the church gets stronger. The church in China right now is growing unbelievably. As persecution increases, the church gets stronger. So what does the devil try to do? He tries to get people to fight from the inside. Because if he can destroy it from the inside out, he's been successful. And one of the ways that he does that is to pervert the truth, to pervert the gospel, and to get us to... I understand incorrectly about the gospel, and then already there's a, a, a rot that begins to set in from the inside of the church that, that impacts it. And so for me, we have to look at the book of Galatians and ask God to show us and show us and show us the truth of the gospel. And I want to say, men, I want to say to you as husbands, your role in your family is to stand for truth in your family. I want to challenge you. Don't leave it to your wife. No, no, no. You are called. Men are called to be guardians of truth in our homes. And so I don't say that in a condemning way. I'm say, trying to say it in an encouraging way. Stand for truth. You be the one to lead the devotions in your family, to read the word of your children, to encourage your children in the word. Don't leave it to your wife all the time. My wife is very diligent at that, and it's a great blessing. But there's also power when the husband, the father, stands over his family and declares the word of God over his own children. Amen? Let's stand for truth. Let's, let's not leave, leave, leave it just to our wives. And we've been speaking for a while now in terms of the main issue of Galatians being that false teaching had come into the Galatian churches that Paul had planted. And there's a group of Judaizers. Judaizers. 
people who wanted to bring something of the Jewish culture, religion into the gospel. And it began to impact the churches in Galatia. In, in effect, what they were saying is that Paul hadn't given the whole truth. Not only did you need the gospel, but you needed the law of Moses as well. And we still have that in the church today. Unfortunately, we still have that in the church today. See, Paul saw that people were trying to add things to the gospel. So in other words, we could put it like this, the gospel plus something. Well, can I just remind you that every cult that's ever started has been with the gospel plus something else. So if you know anything about Joseph Smith, who wrote the Book of Mormon, he started with the gospel, but then he added a whole lot of things to it, and we ended up with the Mormon religion. Can I just ask you to, in your own thinking, in your own mind, to guard the truth of the gospel in your own life? We don't add a whole lot of things to it, because it's the, purely it's the gospel. Amen? So the issue that introduces this whole theme in Galatians is the issue of circumcision. And we've already discussed that over the past weeks. And essentially, I mean, circumcision is a, it's a small little operation. You get a moil and he's got a little guillotine and chink, that's it. That was a joke, okay? If you have seen men in tights, you'll know exactly what I'm speaking about. But you get half the price off. <laughs> It's an issue. It's an issue. It's an issue. It's a minor thing. But for a Jewish person, circumcision is an incredibly, powerfully, religiously significant thing. Why? Because it's a sign of the mark of the promise of all of the inheritance that was due to Abraham was given and was passed down the line, the male line. And the, the covenant that God made with Abraham was this is to be the mark on every single male. And this is a sign of the covenant that all the promises that are promised to Abraham are yours. And so that's why it's such powerful significance in, in, the, in the Jewish culture. But as Helen spoke a couple of weeks ago and showed us, the word that Paul uses for seed when he talks about the seed of Abraham is a singular word. In other, in other words, it applies to one seed, not to multiple seeds, one seed. And we believe that Jesus was that single seed and he was carrying the mark, the sign of the inheritance. And through his life, through what he did, through his death, that inheritance has now been given to Christ. The fullness of that inheritance, of all that was promised to Abraham, is found in Christ and it is ours that we are in Christ Jesus. So enjoy your bacon sandwich. For all the men, you don't have to be circumcised to show that you are in Christ. Praise the Lord. Some of them are going, yes. <laughs> Paul is saying in Galatians, he's saying this, what's the point of being circumcised? It's irrelevant. It is obsolete. It is gone. That's the whole point. And that's why he is so passionate about circumcision because it's a sign of what there's something lying behind the issue of circumcision and that's the Jewish faith and he was born a Jew of Jews and, and, and he gives all of his pedigree and we know something of his pedigree from the letters that we read and he's saying all of that is rubbish in fact Paul is so strong and I'm not trying to be crude now but Paul is so strong if you read Galatians he says this he says I wish those of you that wanted to be circumcised would just go the whole hog and chop the whole thing off that's what he says 
He says, just do the whole thing. If you're so, if you're so passionate about circumcision, castrate yourself. Cut the whole thing off. That's what he says. Go read it for yourself. He's passionate. He's angry. He's saying, I, I think this is a vital, vital issue <laughs> because it's the heart of the gospel. All right? Okay. Why is he so passionate about what lies behind circumcision? Because Judaism can so easily and is so easily a religion of works. It's a religion of works. You save yourself by obeying the Ten Commandments. That's how salvation comes to a Jew. You obey fully the Ten Commandments and you are saved. Well, we all know that is an impossible task. Absolutely impossible. But so many people try to live by that. And what we do in the church is that we subtly impose laws on people or expectations on people. And it's if you live like this, you, you, you are going to be pleasing to God. You are going to be accept, acceptable to God. And so generally, and when I'm talking about the church, I'm talking about the church at large. There can be in churches a long list of do's and don'ts. I come from the Methodist church. They have a, a book of laws and disciplines that is that thick. That's the gospel plus a whole lot of stuff. It's true. Laws and discipline of the church. And so you read, and every year at the synod, some things get adjusted, and theology gets adjusted, whatever. It comes out in this big book of laws and discipline. <laughs> What's the gospel plus? Nothing. Amen? And you see, what this begins to do is that if we start living like that, there's, the sense in the, there's a sense in the church that Christians are against everything. Against, well, I don't know what we, we for. We for the gospel. But, but there can be this impression that Christians are against everything, that they are negative about things. It's don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And that actually they're not funny, fun people to be around because actually they're always worrying about what they shouldn't do. <laughs> Has anyone been in a church like that? And it is true that Christianity is rooted in Judaism. And it is true that much of what we believe is rooted in the Old Testament. But I just want to throw this out there. We talked about a couple of weeks ago, there's 613 laws that Jews try to live by. Are any of those applicable to us? How should we talk about our giving? Should we talk about generous giving? Should we talk about tithing? What should we talk about in terms of how we give generously, for example? I think we need to start asking God to show us about all those things that we don't take anything of the old into the new. God wants to keep us free in the grace of God. There is one law that we live under. It's the law of Christ. Not the law of Moses. It's the law of Jesus. The law of Moses is obsolete. It's been done away with. We can't give people a mixture of both. We want the purity of the gospel to stand in our lives. Amen? And we are committing ourselves to do that with all of our hearts as best as we can as God continually unveils and gives us great and great revelation that none of those things creep into the church. We want to radically deal with them. That's why, my friends, we don't need priestly garb. That's why, my friends, we don't need an altar. That's why we don't need a priest standing between us and the one true God, Jesus. Why? Because all of those things are Old Testament priestly things. We are all priests in the New Testament. All of us. We don't need that stuff. It's been done away with. It is obsolete. I want to, my question to you this morning is, why is so much of the church 
involved in all those things. Or we need another reformation to come, beginning in our own hearts, where we come back to the truth of the purity and simplicity of the gospel. Amen. And you see, ultimately it points to this thing. It, it, It points ultimately to salvation and how we find salvation. And we've said this before, and I want to say it again. We believe, as Christians, that salvation comes by faith alone in Christ Jesus. Faith alone in the completed work of the cross. Not faith plus work. Not works plus faith. But faith alone in Jesus. And we're going to look at some of those things in the months ahead. So I want to look at one theme this morning. And if I can ask Sam to put the, this picture up as we look, just talk a little bit out of Galatians. About the, one of the, the three key themes for me in this book. And they are these, legalism or the law, liberty in Christ in the middle, or license on the other side. We all long for freedom. How many of you don't want to be free? How many of you want to be bound up? Well, I don't. I, I, I'm sure you don't either. All of us long for freedom. And the message of the scripture, the message of the, of the, of, of the gospel is that Christ has come to set you free. That Jesus has come to set you free. And we use language like this. We say that God is, wants slaves through, through, through the, the power of the cross in our lives. He wants to turn slaves into sons. He wants, to, he wants to turn slaves into heirs. And we all know that kind of language. I want to suggest to you that the problem is not just getting free. The problem is also how do you keep your freedom? Because for me, that's a crucial thing, that we keep our freedom. Once we are saved, that we keep our freedom, and we can lose our liberty if we allow some things to happen in our lives. And we want to be those that are continually walking in the liberty and the freedom that God has for us. So I want to say to you, this picture for me summarizes the key themes of Galatians. You see, there are three key concepts. There's the one on the left-hand side, your left, is the, the thing of law, legalism. And if we, if we slip back into legalism in our lives, it's like a cage. And you can't get out of it. You are caged by the law. And you can't break free. On the right-hand side, we have the flesh. And I want to talk about that as well, which is essentially license. I want to say to you that I'm more and more convinced that legalism certainly, absolutely, completely is an enemy of the freedom that we have in Christ. I want to say to you, I'm more and more convinced that license, too, is an absolute enemy of the liberty and the freedom that we have in Christ. They are both equal enemies of the the, the liberty that we have in Jesus. I want to look at that this morning. Are you still with me? Galatians 1 and 2, which we've looked at already, talk about this wonderful liberty that we have in Jesus. Uh, We have the favor of our Father in heaven. We we, We are under the sunshine of His love. However you want to describe it, there's this incredible freedom that we have. And the foundation of that freedom is the Son in the middle there, Jesus, okay? There's two ways that we can lose our freedom. We can slip back into that cage of the law, or we can, I I want it actually to, on the right-hand side, to have a thing of a swamp, because a swamp is is a little bit more uh, descriptive in terms of what license does in our lives. But uh, Jim couldn't find a picture of a swamp, so we put a desert, but it's the same kind of concept. That's the other way that we can lose our liberty is to slip back into the works of the flesh and it, is become, it becomes a swamp that we can't get out of. It's also a bondage. Uh, Paul talks a lot about the works of the flesh and it is a bondage in our lives 
that brings us under the wrath of God. We lose our freedom again. And I've seen far too many decisions made in the life of the church, and I'm not just talking about this church, I'm saying the church generally, far too many decisions made in the church under the guise of freedom, under the guise of being free in the Spirit, that really, at the end of the day, are selfish decisions made by individuals sowing to their flesh in the name of freedom for the good of themselves and themselves alone, not for the good of the church, which Jesus alone is building, and it's the only thing he's interested in building. You see, a, there is a tension that we live in. We are certainly free, but let's, let's live in the liberty of Jesus, the liberty and the freedom that the cross brings. So there is this de- delicate edge that we walk in, in, in terms of our liberty. It's easy to slip into legalism, and I see in my own life that that's my tendency. And I think for most people, it's easier to, to just try and do the right thing. It's easier to do that. And so I can see in my own life that sometimes I've slipped that way. And it's, when we see that we've slipped that way, we have to repent and say, Lord Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, help me to put that thing to death in my life. And can I just say this as we put it to death? Even if it's weighted expectations that we have, can I say we, we put it to death in our lives? We don't want to, to, to be part of a church that's people point, pointing fingers at everybody else and saying, you legalistic. No, no, if you see it in your life, you put it to death in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's not be pointing fingers at other people. Amen. That would be too dreadful. So for me, liberty, and this is what I believe the book of Galatians teaches, liberty in the Spirit is not doing just what you want. It's not doing what others tell you to. It's doing what the Holy Spirit tells you to. Okay? It's not doing what you want. It's not doing what others tell you to do, but it's letting the Spirit guide you, and it's walking by the Spirit. And you know, I love what Paul says in Galatians, um, I can't remember the, the reference now, but it's Galatians 4, I think. He says, we as Christians, we enjoy the freedom not to sin. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> Christian freedom is the freedom not to sin. No unbeliever has that freedom. Those that don't know Christ do not have that freedom in their lives. But it's the freedom that God has for you and I, every one of us. We can't try and stop people from sinning by subtly putting them under the law or subtly putting them under a weighted expectation. That it's just an expectation, but perhaps it's a little weighted and then it becomes a law in their lives. The whole argument of this magnificent book of Galatians is that in Christ we have liberty and freedom. Apart from Him, we have no freedom, but in, in, in Him we have complete freedom. It's beautiful. So Galatians 1 and 2, they talk about the liberty that we have in Christ. Chapters 3 and 4 talk about legalism that can spoil it. And chapters 5 and 6, if you go and study 5 and 6, they talk about a license that can equally rob the liberty that we have in Christ. So I want to look at those two things, legalism and license. And for, for just addressing the first one of legalism, for the Galatians, the first link in the chain was the issue of circumcision. It would be the beginning for them because behind that whole thing of circumcision lay the underlying thing of the, Jew, the, the, the Jewish faith. And I've, I've found, as I've thought about this, as I've talked to people about this, the underlying thing that people have in their hearts and in their lives that they verbalize is this. If we don't have any laws, surely people are just going to rush off and become 
indulgent and do whatever they want. Well, you see, that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the thing that we, we have to take the risk when we preach grace. The grace of Christ, that we are free in Him. I am more and more convinced of this simple truth, though, that rules and regulations don't bring revival. Can I just say that again? Rules and regulations don't bring revival. If they could have brought revival, it would have happened already. Because we have a church largely that is full of rules and regulations. But revival has not yet come in its fullness. Are you with me? Organizations and organization in the church, although we need organization... And it's important, it, organization doesn't bring revival either, either. Because if it did bring revival, then surely it's logical that just the, the more organized we become, the greater of the degree of revival we will experience. If organization brings revival. Well, it doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't bring revival. So what does bring re- revival then? Well, liberty brings life. Freedom brings life. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. What is true revival is when you are absolutely in love with Jesus in your life. You are besotted with Jesus. You are absolutely consumed by Him. You are, your, your primary motivation of your life is Christ. And when you are in that place, you are truly free and revival begins to come in your life. And so we have to be those that look out for legalism with an eagle eye. And let's look out for licentiousness with an eagle eye and not fall into other. License, I've already said, Paul talks about and uses this, this phrase, the works of the flesh. And watch out for work, the works of the flesh in your own life because they are another form of slavery. And what I mean by that? Well, uh, we fall into that desert place, that swamp, and it's so easy to get in and it's very hard to get out. And Paul very obviously names a couple of things. He talks about promiscuity as a work of the flesh. He talks about occultism as work of the flesh, but I want to just suggest some others to you this morning that are equally potent and equally to be, to be done away with in our lives, even if they are a little bit more subtle. Things like quarreling, <laughs> things like anger, things like jealousy, things like envy, things like prejudice, they are all works of the flesh. All works of the flesh that we have to take captive by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So Paul said, it's a good question then. What happens when we know that we've fallen into either legalism or, or license? Well, Paul says quite clearly, he says, if someone slipped back into those things, pick them up quickly, help them to repent, get back into fellowship and love on them and help them to get healed. That's all we have to do. That's all we have to do. Let's not be those that continually allow our lives just to be consumed by those two things. We don't want to slip into legalism. We don't want to slip into license. We need to pull, be pulled out of both of those quickly. Let's not choose to stay in the cage. Let's not choose to stay in the desert, to stay in the swamp. Let's choose to be those that are living in the liberty and the freedom that comes by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. What did Michael Eaton say? Walk in the Spirit deliberately and you will fulfill the law accidentally. Amen. I want to say, let that become a theme of our hearts. Walk by the Spirit deliberately, and you will fulfill the law accidentally. If you love Jesus with all of your heart, you will not commit adultery. If you love Jesus with all of your heart, young men and young women, you won't click on the pornography channel because you love Him with all of your heart. You don't want to do that. Why do you want to do that? It's, it's actually easy by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Liberty is the freedom not to sin. It's a lovely freedom. You are free in Christ, every one of you, when you come into a relationship with Him, and you are free not to sin. You don't need to say yes to sin in your life ever again. And Paul says that in his letter to Titus. He he says very clearly, you have been given the grace to say no. Every one of us can say no. Can I just conclude with this? Because I've already probably gone over time. The Bible's very clear. It's a beautiful picture that as we learn to walk by the Spirit, something beautiful happens. We, the, the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow in our life. Isn't that amazing? As we just simply walk by the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit grows in our life. And I just want to talk a little bit about, about the fruit of the Spirit. There's one fruit of the Spirit that has nine different flavors. Okay? If you can imagine a fruit that tasted of nine different things when you ate it, that would describe the fruit of the Spirit. And you all know what those flavors are. Um, and I want to say to you, it's possible to see those things in unsaved people as well. Some people, unsaved people, are joyous. They are joyous people. Some people have a degree of peace. But only in Christ and only in followers of Christ who are baptized by the power of the Holy Spirit and who are walking in the Spirit can you see all nine operating at the same time. Only in Christ is that possible. Only in Christ is it possible. So the first three, love, joy, and peace, they bring us into a perfect relationship and a perfect harmony with God the Father. Isn't that amazing? Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, and goodness bring you into a good relationship, not only with God, but with other people. If you are, if, in your life, if there's a patience, a kindness, and a goodness, your relationship with others will be A-OK. And the last three, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control, who does that bring you into a good relationship with? yourself. So, we have nine fruits, well, one fruit, nine flavors. The first three, good relationship with God. Second three, good relationship with each other. Third three, good relationship with myself. I'm happy in my own skin. That's lovely. I want that kind of, I want to taste that fruit more and more in my life. I don't know about you. By the power of the Holy Spirit. I was just thinking about it, you know. Um, you can, you can show some of those things by the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, if, for example, the owner works in a hospital, so I could go and visit someone in a hospital, and I could show some of the fruit of the Spirit. I could show love by visiting them. I could show joy by cheering them up. I could show peace by helping to calm them down if they were upset about the operation that they'd been going through. I could... Um, Show patience by listening to all the details of what they've had to go through. I could show uh, kindness by taking them a bunch of flowers. I could show self-control or um, by when, the, when the nurse told me to leave and I hadn't finished, I could show self-control by just leaving. All right? I could uh, show goodness by, by going back again and again and again and, and visiting them. I could show goodness by offering to look after their children. You can exhibit all those fruits in a wonderful way. But I want to say this to you. We need also the gifts of the Spirit to be working with the fruit of the Spirit because I cannot heal anybody. I can't heal anybody myself, but Christ can heal. And so we need the gifts of the Spirit working with the fruit of the Spirit. And can I just ask you as we go forward this year that we commit ourselves 
never to set the gifts of the Spirit against the fruit of the Spirit. Can we agree to do that? They, we need both. And they work together beautifully and perfectly. Let's, ne- let, let's never elevate one above the other. Let's never say the one is better than the other. We want all the gifts. We don't want the fruit. No, we want both. We want the fruit and we want the gifts. And then we're going to start to see power released into the life. Not only this church, but the church at large. Amen? Last little thing. I said this uh, yesterday as I was talking with some of the business guys. But that little phrase that Paul uses, he says, we need to walk in the Spirit. If you go and look in chapter 5 and mark in your Bible verse 16 and verse 25, it's translated in the, in the English in the same, by the same phrase, walk in the Spirit. But the first one, chapter uh, 5 verse 16, we, should, we can very well um, translate that with an Aussie, Aussie phrase. How many of you heard the phrase Australians use as go walk about? What does go walk about mean to Australian? It means you go on a long walk by yourself. You go walk about. You go into the outback and you go walk about. And Jesus says he wants all of us to have that relationship, that walking with the Spirit that is individual. It's my walk with the Spirit. I walk with the Spirit on a daily basis in my life. I'm responsible for that. But then verse 25, which is also translated in the English as walk in the Spirit, has another meaning. It is, it is this. It should be more accurately translated as to march in the Spirit in step with others. Amen. So it's not just about me and my little walk of the Spirit, just doing God what tells me, and God tells me this, so I do this, without any regard for anybody else or for the church that He's trying to build. It is both. It is a walk by the Spirit that I need to walk in individually, and it is me and you walking in step with each other, marching arm in arm by the power of the Holy Spirit as a mighty army, because that's how God is going to build His church. It is both. And it's quite clear from the Scripture that it is both. And let's encourage each other in both. That we are encouraging people with the individual walk, that they are being obedient in their lives. At the same time, we're building together. Jesus wants to build the church. That's the message of the book of Galatians. The freedom that we stand for is the freedom not to sin. The freedom that we have is to keep ourselves free of the cage of legalism, free of the swamp, the desert place called license, and the freedom to stand high up on the mountaintop with Christ, enjoying the full blessings of God's favor in our lives. That's the freedom that we have. God bless you. I trust that you are going to enjoy that freedom in your life in an ever-increasing and wonderful way. Amen? I want to ask the musicians to come to lead us as we worship.